0: This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Welcome back to the channel. I'm your host, Benjamin Linder. This is episode three of our special mini-series on the new River Cities as Method project being developed here at the International Institute for Asian Studies. If you haven't already listened to the first two episodes in the mini-series, you might miss some important context, so do go back into your podcast feed and listen to those two before proceeding. In this episode, Satya and I continue our discussion of her work among the riverine community in Brazil. Our conversation today centers on the idea of mappings or cartographies, which is the second pillar of the River Cities as Method project. If you are currently researching the relationship between cities and rivers, visit ukna.asia. There you'll find more information, as well as the recently published Call for Expressions of Interest. By the time this episode gets released, the August 2022 deadline will be fast approaching, so don't wait to get involved. In the meantime, enjoy this third episode of the mini-series with Satya Pachanilam.
1: Satya, welcome back on the channel. Thanks for coming back to talk more about River Cities and the River Cities project being developed at IIAS.
2: Thank you very much.
1: So the second theme being highlighted in the River Cities project is mapping or cartographies, which brings up all these questions of space and place and territory and ecology. So I want to start as broadly as possible. What region of Brazil are we talking about here when we talk about Altamira and the River Islands?
2: So Altamira is located in a state called Pará. Pará is um, in the northern part of of Brazil uh, in the Amazon region. Um, It's where the lower Amazon River flows to the sea. So it's the last piece of the Amazon River, the the big, uh, well-known famous Amazon River.
1: There are a few landscapes that are important in the everyday lives of riverine people in this region. These include rivers, but also forests and cities. Can you describe this relationship that the Riverine community has to forest, rivers, and cities?
2: Yeah, of course. So the Riverine, um, forest, rivers, and cities are used for different things. Um, the forests are used for collecting products and, um, um planting their, their food, um, also hunting. Um, Rivers are for fishery and transportation and even social gathering, which I thought it was very interesting. And cities are for economic purposes. So they don't have interest in the city. They just use the city to sell their products, everything that they grew in um, their their land, or they caught um, in the river. Also, the cities provide them um, public services, so if they're sick, they can go to the hospitals. And in the Ringer bank, there are schools for the kids, but only up to 10, uh, only up to uh, t- 10 year old, years old. And then after that, they have to go to the city to study. So before Uh, Many years ago, they used to send their kids to family members. But now, what I realized, what I learned from them is um, that, of course, the families that are that are interviewed, they, the women from each family, they go to the city to accompany the kids. So they, these women, they do find jobs in the city just to be able to sustain the life in the city. Um, but the idea is always to go back to the river. So the man, the husband, um, or partner, um, they stay in the riverbank fishing and working on the land and bring the goods, um, uh, to the city. As I mentioned, um, in the episode before, um, during the weekend to sell the goods and, um, make money and also help the, the women. And, and, and of course, have a little bit of money and buy their things, but that's the dynamic. That's how they, they, they function. It's mostly their primary house is the river. It's not the city.
1: So can you just introduce this urban landscape for people not familiar with Altamira? How big is this city roughly and who are the majority of its inhabitants?
2: Yeah, Alcanida is a very, very big municipality. Used to be um, the biggest municipality in the world, actually, but most of it is forest. It's just uh, the land is just forest. The city, according to the Brazilian National Sense, in 2010, there were around a little bit less than than 100,000 inhabitants. And a decade later, it went up to 116,000, um, roughly in that city, I have to say it's a mix of a lot of um, people from a lot of places in, in part of the country. So there are um, indigenous living in the city, there are um, traditional people. So keep in mind that I went there after the dam was, had already started construction so there were people, there were a lot of workers. There were people from from everywhere, basically. And interestingly enough, in 2017, um, there were a big um, migration of people from the south looking for land to for agriculture. So that area is very mixed of people from all over the country.
1: Yeah, we're gonna return to the dam in just a second because that's a crucial part of the story that you're telling in your research. But that does bring us back nicely to the river itself and the particular relationship that the riverine people have with rivers and in particular with the Shingu River. Can you describe the Shingu River for our listeners? Where is it and just what is it like to be on that river?
2: The Shingu River before the dam was a free river. It wasn't a river dammed. There were a lot of um, waterfalls and a lot of rock. It was very rocky. Um, I did not see the river before the dam, but what the rumor described was that the, the water was very clear and it was greenish. Um, You could see all the way to the ground when I was there. Because of the dam, I could not see um, the ground anymore. I could not even see my hand if I put my hand inside. Um, So one interesting thing, to me at least, is that the Shingo River um, starts um, in the state of Mato Grosso. So it's another state. It's under the state of Para. And it starts in the Shingle, in the Xingu Indigenous Park. It's the first indigenous park ever in Brazil. Um, it currently has sixteen tribes, and it has the and the length is a thousand six hundred and forty kilometers. So it's a very very long river. It was. Um, I cannot say it was wild because there were, there are a lot of cities that are found around the river. Um, a lot of isolated population, a lot of, there's a park, there are, there are many different tribes, many different languages. It's a, it's a river that, um, is very strong because it's very wide. It's very green around it. Um, the, the river used to have freshwater beaches where people would have to camp and, and enjoy themselves. So it was a it was a river that was for everyone.
1: In the last conversation we had, you talked a lot about the history and mythology and culture of, among the Riverine people. And the river is an important part of that story. The Shingu River is Ingrained in Ripperine culture. In one of your articles that you've published previously, you write, quote, The people of water's relationship with the river reflects itself in many layers of the riverine people's daily life, from transportation to income, social network, and traditions. The location occupied by each family holds history not only as a place where one grows their food or hunts, but also where the community members gather for annual parties, exchange goods, and bury their family members. Can you expand on this relationship between the Riverine people and the river? What is the importance of the river for the lives of Riverine people?
2: So just so the listeners will understand, when you say people of waters, it's how the the Riverines are known as well? So you can see the importance of the river for, for the Riverians. So they're the people of it as well. I will try my best to express the importance of the river in their lives. But I don't think I'll be able to express it, not even attempt, because it's so much more than what I can even imagine. But everything in their lives is about the river. So they do bury their their family, um, their deceased, and um, on the land that is beside the river, um, they have the rituals, um, the exchange of goods. Like I said before, everything is caught from the river, on from the from the nature for the trading, for the selling. Um, the importance of the river to fertilize the soil and for them to be able to use the soil the next year to plant their their food. So everything's connected. The trees that feed the the fish that they catch to feed their family. So everything is a a circle, and they are inside that circle of life.
1: It does make the stakes of what we're about to talk about much clearer, which is the construction of a major dam in the region, as you say, on a river that did not previously have a dam. So particularly, one of the key disruptions that you're looking at is the Bellamonte hydropower dam. And before we get into the politics of the dam and all of the displacements that it caused, I want to know a little bit about the project itself. Where did it come from? Who's funding it? Who's developing it? Can you just tell us what is the Bellamonte hydropower dam?
2: Um, the story of Belém Monte Dam is is quite long. It actually started in 30 years ago, or, or even a little bit more. We're 2022. Okay, yeah, um, yeah, uh, 30 uh, 30 plus years ago, and um, the idea in 30 plus years ago was to construct a, a complex of dams in the Shingle River called and that's an indigenous um word. Um if I'm not mistaking this for fighter. I can be wrong. Um I didn't check my notes. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> but it started 30 years ago. It was supposed to be a complex the the environmental and social effect would be huge and Um, A lot of indigenous tribes would be affected directly, which means their land would be flooded. So in 1989, there was the largest indigenous movement against it, um, ever seen in Brazil, actually. And there were many environmentalists um, national and international environmentalists there, and reporters um, from all over the world. Sting was there as well to bring awareness, which did create uh, an impact. Um, that, uh, in that period, so the dam was not constructed. Years ago, it was set aside for more development. Um, so they they worked on it throughout these years. So about the name, I mentioned Gararo, the fighter. Um, during this gathering, this indigenous um, movement, the indigenous said you guys cannot, you have to stop using um, indigenous words, indigenous names for things that are going to destroy our livelihood. So they started using uh, Belonche, Belonche is is the pretty uh, mountain. So they gave another word, they gave a Portuguese name for it. Um, Who is funding it? Um, BNDIS, it's a Brazilian bank. They're the one funding it. But they're not developing the the, the dam. The company responsible for developing the the dam is Norte Energia. They want the, the bidding. So we started uh, construction in 2010.
1: So from the perspective of the government and its developers, what are the benefits that are supposedly going to be gained from the construction of this dam?
2: It's energy. It's basically um, production of energy. So that's the purpose, energy for industries and other states. So Belmont is, is, 70 kilometers from Altamira, and, and they don't provide energy to the city. They provide energy outside the city.
1: So is the current state of the dam that it's completed, or has it? Is it still under construction? It's completely developed at this
2: point. It's completed. It's done. It was done two years ago, if I'm not mistaken, two or three years ago.
1: Can you talk a little bit now about the negative effects that the dam has had? These include ecological, but also social impacts, particularly on the riverine people.
2: Yeah, so the immediate impact that I heard from locals, not even the river, um, was the beaches that I mentioned before. They are not existing anymore. They were flooded. So because of the dam, now... Uh, there is a lagoon that was formed, like a, reserv- a reservoir. And in this reservoir, the water is steady. It's not flowing anymore. So, as I mentioned before, the riverites used to tell me that you could see your feet when you're in the water. Now I put my hand in the water and I can't even see my hand. Yeah, so it's time. Um, it's pollution, it's dirty, the animals are not floating anymore, a lot of fish are dying. We see that a lot. We see that the fish are sick. Um, if you open, the the Brighardians were telling me, I didn't see it, but if when they open a fish, sometimes they smell bad. Yeah, I remember when I was there the last time, no, the first time in 2018, one of the turbines from the dam, had stopped because of the amount of fish that was stuck in there. And when they claimed it, it was uh, like so many. So yeah, so that's like the, the things that you really see. That's the, the effect that the land had, that you can see as a person from outside.
1: And in terms of their day-to-day lives of the river ants, would you say that the fishing impact has been the largest on them? You said that there are potentially polluted fish in this now polluted water has that been one of the larger impacts for the river runs in terms of their livelihoods
2: i'd say um that's what i heard the most because the fish are are sick and they're not in enough fish because they're not breeding and they're not going up the rivers to, so the fish naturally they go up the river to for the ovulation for the eggs right to lay the, the eggs. They, they know where to go and that's not happening, that's not natural anymore. There is a system, they didn't build the system in the dam, but that's not, well, that's not natural, so I don't think every fish is gonna know what to do. So yeah, so because the dam um, opens and closes for the water to flow whenever they want and they don't announce it to, this, to the fishermen and the fishermen and the city, Um, sometimes when the fish, the the riverines, they put the the net on the, on the river to catch the fish and then two hours later they come to collect the fish, the net is not even there because they opened the, the turbines for the water to go. And also another change in the environment was because now there are no islands anymore. And the reservoir is much higher than the the island. So it's just one swimming pool. The waves are very high. And and whenever there's a lot of rain, there's a lot of rain in the Amazon. Um, There's the dry season and the the wet season. A lot of wind. And sometimes there are big waves. And yeah, so now the riverine are very scared to be in the river because, yeah, they don't know how to, they used to. So it's very interesting. Okay, I have to say, this yeah. is very interesting. Because I was um, in, the, in the boat with them, and I'm like, you know what? Just let's ride the river as if it used to be before, as it was before. Just imagine the islands and, and the trees and everything, and it was like a zigzag and now it's just a straight line. So they knew where every single rock was. They knew every single thing. They knew where to catch that type of fish. They knew where to catch the other type of fish because the trees were there um, giving these, these um, type of fish um, food. Or they knew where to catch the small fish for aquariums because they used to be under the, the rocks. And also that that's they show um separation for each type of fishery does not exist anymore because now it's a reservoir, so the fish are also you don't know where the fish are, I think they they might talk to another place, many dying. so that also was affected by the
1: I think you've written that there were around twenty thousand people registered officially as being quote affected by the infrastructure project of the dam. Um, Resettlement for these quote-unquote affected people began around 2012. How did the River End people respond to this resettlement?
2: Okay so the the response to resettlement was according to what they accepted actually. It was not everybody was resettled. Um, Many people accepted money instead of Resettlement because um, that was offered to them, and according to the migrants, that were they were very manipulated in the sense that the company enforced them to make decision right away, very fast. I talked to locals, even not even not only the migrants, and they said that the company offered. A certain amount and then in the next visit that amount was lower and then the next visit the amount was low even lower so they had to make a decision really fast and some people there was only four percent that decided to settle you can understand that the money of compensation is less than constructing a house so probably that's why we use that method so the migrants' response to resettlement, what is not very positive, some like overall not very positive because of the distance. Let's remember that going to the resettlement units, the, the resettlement sites, they the houses are similar. So they sometimes they used to go to houses that were not theirs because they couldn't identify, and also. It's up the hill, and the riverine. They don't. They don't know how to how to drive. They know how to um, pilot a, a boat, but drive is, is something that they haven't learned. So um, to walk from the river to one of the the collective urban resettlement is around two hours. And can you imagine? Um, carrying every equipment to fish. That's impossible. And also having money to rent a car or something to take it and come back. It's also important to say that public transportation in Altamira, it it was really, really bad. And even when I was there in 2018 and 2020, it was, it's not the best. Now there are public buses before there weren't any. Um, but you cannot put fishing equipment inside a bus because of public bus. So that's also, um, I hope I answered your question.
1: What is the current state of the River rats now? Are, are many of them still living both along the riverbanks and in the city in this kind of dual housing situation? Or what's, what's kind of the general situation of the community today?
2: Because my research is on the resettlement the resettled families, right? I don't know much about the other um that are that did not go to the resettlement areas. But the ones that accepted a house in the resettlement, some didn't like didn't like the distance. So they sold it and they went somewhere else. But most of them stayed in the in the in these houses and they were able to get a house in the riverbank but that's um that's something we're going to discuss in the next episode
1: yeah so for listeners following along the next episode is going to be centering around revitalizations which is the third anchoring theme of the river cities project so please be on the lookout for that and we hope to see you that until then thank you again satya for having these conversations with us
2: thank you so much
0: was Satya Pachanilam, academic advisor to the River Cities as Method project, as well as the International Principal Investigator for the RCM pilot project. To learn more about the River Cities as Method initiative, stay tuned for the final episode, episode four, of this mini-series. You can also visit the Urban Knowledge Network Asia website at ukna.asia. That's also where you can submit an expression of interest to join the River Cities as Method project. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally-oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we would love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit EAS.Asia. That's I-I-A-S dot A-S-I-A. See you next time.